Hello, this is Stephen King. Well, sometimes that is better. Hi, Georgie. I'm your number one fan. Get busy living. Get busy dying. Here's Johnny. <gasps> So, hello and welcome back to the Constant Reader Podcast with me, Richard Shepard. And I would like to begin today's episode, as always, with an apology for not having another episode out recently. Uh, Last time it was because I was moving house, and this time it was because I was making a film with recent podcast guest Justin Stanley, and that's something I want to talk about uh, when it comes out and in the run-up to that. It's not a Stephen King adaptation, sadly, but it is a rather good horror film, so I, I hope you... Enjoy that when it comes out. So sorry, it's been a while. Although coming up, we do have some treats. We've got uh, N.P. Cunliffe talking about his novel, The Ouija Man, and the Pet Cemetery film, Bloodlines, which will be coming out. I mean, the interview's going to be coming out next month. Um, I'm also a guest on King Size Podcast again on the Survivor Type series, uh, talking about uh, my life as a Stephen King fan. So that's going to be great. I'll put a link to that when it comes out. Also, we'll be talking about the Dark Tower with Kim C from the Underrated Stephen King Podcast, which, as you may know, is something I've been putting off for a very long time as a Dark Tower skeptic, but Kim C is a good guide, and I'm sure she'll see me through the other side. Um, today, as you probably know, we're going to be talking about The Stand, and before I introduce my guest, I would just like to say to other podcasts that covered The Stand when the uh, uh, COVID uh, epidemic broke out and everybody, all the other Stephen King podcasts talking about the stand. That's that's a very root one. Okay, that's very basic, and I'm ashamed of all of you. Okay, how about talking about something that's not about a killer flu when there's a killer flu going on? It's just how how does the root one look to you guys? Because uh, it doesn't look good to me. It's not my way. So shame on you all. But to join me in talking about the stand is uh, a man who has already got a reputation in this podcast for the epic novel. He helped me with a two-part podcast about it a few years ago, and it's one of our highest-rated uh, um, episodes. Not only because of the quality of the guests, but also the quality of the uh, the discussion and the deep dive we really took into Stephen King's uh, classic story of childhood and horror. Uh, it's Andy Stanton, uh, a writer, famous uh, creator of the uh, Mister Gum series of books. Uh, but he's also the author of a new book called Benny the Blue Whale, which is a fascinating uh, look into how AI is affecting the writing craft, all done with Andy's typical humor, wit, and incisiveness. He is also, like me, a fan of the long-running English TV series The Tumblers Willie. So I really hope we get to talk some Willie later as well, because uh, I want to pick his brains about uh, the upcoming Christmas special and uh, that through the past and uh, how it's affected both our lives. So welcome, Andy, to the Constant Reader Podcast again. Hello, Richard. Thank you for having me back. Thank you. In the meantime, it, since we last spoke, and you've got all bullshit trash-talking other podcasters and stuff, so that's fun to see. Good for you. <laughs> well, it's, it's a doggy dog world out there. Ever since we did that, there's like eight new Stephen King podcasts, and I just want to remind them who right. is the... Uh, they just hmm? need a bit of a slap down from time to time. I just want to remind them who, who's in Las Vegas and who's in Boulder, okay? Because, wow. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm just saying. That's, that's, I'm over the I'm over the mountain and I'm, I'm looking at them. That's polarizing talk, quite literally. <laughs> so we are going to talk about the stand today. It's um, 
like a lot of people, it's one of my favorite Stephen King books. I don't love it in the same way that I love it. I don't have nostalgia about it in the same way that I have nostalgia about Salem's Lot. And I don't admire it in the same way that I admire Revival. But it is one that stays with me. It stayed with me ever since I was a kid and I read it. And it's got so many depths, so much theme, so much raw meat to chew on that it it, it really is one that I've been looking forward to tackling for a long time. Um, Andy, I'm going to ask you a question first and then a question after that, because that's how this works. <laughs> the first question, don't talk about the themes of the book so much. Tell me about your biographical journey with The Stand. When did you first read it? Were you a new King fan at that point? Mm-hmm. What were your immediate impressions of it? Uh, like many of my first impressions of Stephen King, it were, these, this was uh, coloured or maybe tainted by the local W.H. Smith, which I used to pour over the shelves. I think we talked about this last time a bit, but they had an edition of The Stand that just terrified me. All of the covers of the horror section uh, back then were really, really kind of lurid and garish in a way that maybe has been lost a little now, you know. Um, I think it was the one with kind of two glaring red eyes with with a kind of cross motif behind it. And that was really all you got. And I remember on the back of the, you know, this big brick bat of a novel, it said, uh, first came the days of the plague, then came the dreams. And, you know, it's just so resonant, two eyes across, and then these kind of uh, sort of horrific uh, Zen koans on the back. And that was my first memory. I I didn't read it for, uh, it was probably the, fifth sixth seventh king book i read maybe in my teens um and it instantly for me it is it it is the companion piece to it this you know the stand is his magnum opus in the 70s it is the uh magnum opus in the 80s and they're they're kind of two ends of something to me um and then the rest of my journey is that you know in the 90s i think it was he brought out the director's cut more or less where he reinstated another what 250 pages or something and that made it kind of more labyrinthine again because i as we might get on to i i now kind of can't quite remember what was and wasn't in the original copy i read and i seem to have lost that one it's hard to come by some bits i know you know the later interpolations of of the original cut bits but anyway this is a this is a book that is uh, sort of constant, a constant rumination for me, really. That's the, that's the take-up. Bearing in mind, how many times would you say you've actually read The Stand? Right, I've read, I've read one iteration of it or another about seven times, but I've listened to it on audio as well, maybe 20, 30 times. I like to just have it on, even if I'm only half listening. I, I always want to try and feed it into my, into my sort of data banks. I just want it there all the time. And this is kind of leading on to the question I really wanted to ask, because I've read this book probably around five times, I would say. And as with it, and I think we talked about this last time. Can I just say, I I love it how deep we all are on this. Like, Oh, it's not one of my favorites. I've only read this thousand page book five times. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) That's a good point. Although in many ways, to me, it was always kind of a comfort read. Which yeah. is like an odd thing to say about an end of the world book. It was like a place where I could pick it up and immediately dive into that world. And isn't it? And we'll get onto the style mm-hmm. of how it's written. But it is an incredibly readable book. The pace of it 
is marvellous. But to, to go back to what I was saying, so you've, you've read this at least half a dozen times, listened to it on the audiobook a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about this with it. Every time I read it, I got something new out of it. Yeah. I had a different perspective. I had a different, oh, okay, I didn't really see that before. Mm-hmm. So for the for this episode, for the reread for this episode, what was it about the stand that grabs you, Andy Stanton, at this point in your life? Uh, I, what, did you, what did you notice and think? I've never really thought about that before. I've never really noticed that. I think it's such constant background in my life in these last few years that um, I, 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 I'm... I'm not getting new new things out of it. I think it's uh, solidified and it's now my base rock, or is that a phrase? Uh, it, it's now my... Uh, it, I, I don't think I've got anything new out of it in the last year or two. But I think what endures is the world building mm. uh, and the characterization. Uh, I think that's why it's a cosy book, even though it's an actually really horrific book. And again, when we talked it, I said that to my mind, it's sort of like uh, Close Encounters versus E.T. would be The Stand versus It, whereas they're from the same mind, they have some of the same preoccupations, but one of them is a little more quote-unquote adult and kind of brutal, and that would be The Stand, Mm. or that would be Close Encounters, and the other is a little softer and uh, soft focus and warmer, and that would be It versus E.T., and I love them, you know, I love all of these things. But uh, for, for me, what the what it and the stand have most in common is this huge kind of um, dramatic persona, this this cast of characters who you love. And the, the, the um, with, with both books, you have this amazing experience where you're reading it for the first time where you just cannot believe how many great characters you're give, you're being given one after the next, you know. You get a chapter um, on Stu, and then you get a chapter on Franny, and then you get a chapter on, uh, who's next? Uh, I think, is it Larry? And Larry, I think, yeah. And, and it just keeps on coming, you know. And then you get one on Lloyd, and later on you get one on Trash Can Man, and then later on, guys and girls and whatever's, you get one on Randall Flagg, right, which is just kind of like the point of it all but you know it, it you can't you can't quite believe what you're being given you can't understand or i can't how you know that and this is this is prime prime stephen king in his pomp where he just basically sketches you a character and you go oh my god i want to read about this person all day i love them and that you know that 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 to me is it, it's you, if you read the stand once you don't really forget those characters and their names and surnames are probably burned in your mind for all time you know <laughs> that's very interesting because part of my kind of Stephen King philosophy something that I've always kind of cleaved to uh, is the fact that uh, it and the stand are completely different in my opinion oh that's very interesting you, you do have I agree they have in common characters that you are become obsessed with reading about that you're invested in that you want to know more about that you can live with but i don't know what it is i think maybe it's just the fact that um as we said the stand is such a linear narrative it takes place literally over half a year but it's like over a thousand pages so it's quick it's quick it's mm-hmm. day by day by day everything's always happening you see the seasons change uh-huh. you see people grow but under the conditions of extremists, they're tested. 
But with it, it's more about the contrast between the child and the man. It's saying like what childhood trauma does over the course of like 20, 30 years to people. And it's more about how history, history affects people, history affects the town. And this book, everything is not everything, obviously. But to me, the overwhelming concept of this book is newness. It's renewal. It's going to somewhere like Boulder, Colorado, and it's they start afresh, they start anew, they forget, or they try to maybe forget who they were to a certain mm. point. And you see that in the character of Harold, who reinvents himself, although he doesn't really because he's always that broken person inside. But you do see it in people like Stu, who goes from being this kind of very taciturn, Mm-mm. laconic Texan to being like a politician and um, somebody with a child and a wife. And I don't know, to me, it seems very, it, it, there is a huge contrast between. The, you're right. I mean, the, the, the scale. How t- history is treated, you know. And yes. Someone like, someone like Boulder, it's not Derry because Boulder, most of the corpses have already gone. So it's kind of like an empty playground for people <laughs> where they can like build up who they want to be. But Derry has this long, grotesque history that shapes the present and it's something that the future is something the characters escape from rather than the standard which well, the future is something the characters kind of escape into well you know what you make a good point now shut up now um okay you can, you no. can admit you're wrong it's fine no. it's no problem i know i think it's very interesting right i think you're exactly right i think those uh, those are all oppositional things right and they're kind of diametrically opposed you have the vast scale versus the small scale right and then you have the uh the uh, uh, sort of all of human history versus, uh, sorry, not all of human history, you have the, the uh, centuries of history in a town versus a very rapidly uh, unfolding series of events. But, okay, what are the similarities? Firstly, the big pool of relatable characters, absolutely, yes. right? Secondly, there is a very quick coming of age, uh, at, you know, at a hyper speed for a lot of the characters in this novel because the plague changes them all. And there's a point where Franny looks at Stu and sort of thinks, gosh, the plague has brought out something from him that wouldn't have emerged otherwise, right? And that would have lain trapped inside him in all time. And he wouldn't he wouldn't have flourished into a, a public speaker and a public uh, figure. So, and you can see a lot of very, very quick development, which doesn't have 27 years between the child and the adult, but there's a corollary for that. But what's really interesting as well, right, is that, uh, and the other thing, the other reason I call them big companion pieces are that to, uh, for me, they are the kind of state. Uh, this they are the kind of state of the nation or state of the decade. So the stand for the seventies, it for the eighties. They both seem to encapsulate something and uh, some sort of distillation of that that era and that time oh and by the way you know that when um king Reed does the stand he he ages it by 12 years or something and puts it in the late 80s which i find a nonsense by the way and i think i i think it, it, you know it's it, it's not enough to say uh, to drop in half a dozen madonna and prince references but then the the characters are still talking very much and thinking very much like king's understanding of 70s psychology right so mm. I, ostensibly it's still a 70s novel with a couple of a, a, anachronisms stuck on top so i'm going to call it a 70s novel um but but to, that is very interesting that is something i want to talk about it's like how much does this book reflect the society it was right the, to, to, to me we can really go into yeah that. yes please and to me they you know those are 
that, those are the similarities. This, this, this is, I am Stephen King. This is my statement for the 70s, as I see it. And I am Stephen King, and it is my statement for the 80s. But the other really interesting thing that you've made me think of is that here's a brilliant diametric. Um, King uses the small town as a world in it and in many of his novels. But most, you know, most obviously in it. And in The Stand, he takes the entire world and turns it into a small town or two, if you count the Vegas community as well. So he's not, you know, even there when he's dealing with, you know, kind of the most brutal story of his career where you've, you know, the the head count in this one, guys, (laughs) this is (laughs) 99.9992% of all humanity. That's a really impressive head count. Uh, Even there, King goes, you know, he, he atavistically, foresees the new society as two small towns. That's very interesting. I, I didn't actually see it that way, but now you talk about it. It's kind of interesting that we do rebuild society in not New York or LA, not a big city. Mm-hmm. It is a medium-sized, somewhat prosaic, rather dull city like Boulder, Colorado, yeah, yeah, yeah. where it is basically a city the size of a town with something with village This mentality. is King's model, right? He, he this, is, this is... You know, this is kind of why we love him. We do love the coziness at the heart of him as well. And, uh, you know, we all kind of want to live in a Stephen King small town, don't we, really? Where spooky stuff happens from time to time. I, I, I would rather live in the world of The Stand than It, I would say. I'd rather live in the in the boulder of, really? the, of The Stand than It, because it does have that slightly more hopeful quality to it. And we talked about this when we talked about it, was that the end of it is the end of Derry. Derry itself kind of collapses mm-hmm. in a massive cataclysm and and it's probably never going to recover because it's it served its usefulness. Well, it does, it does recover in um, insomnia, but it seems like a completely dull place after, you mm. know, post-1985, <laughs> right? It doesn't seem like the same town at all except by name. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's it's robbed of anything that gave it any kind of interest and, of course, the evil force lurking beneath it. And speaking of which, this is kind of another thing that struck me as an oppositional thing between The Stand and It, is that It has a very unusual, nebulous law of how it, Pennywise came to be, how it came to Earth, its oppositional force in the turtle. It's all very much Stephen King law like the dark tower mm-hmm. kind of making it up this this is what the mythology is this is what it is whereas the stand it cleaves to a very conventional mythology which is christianity right, absolutely there's no you can't say like randall flag is like his own thing he is a devil he does have a christian background he is an archetype from christianity right and we have his in the same way that mother abigail is on the other side of that, yeah. yeah well, absolutely. I mean, the the, uh, the battle is all about, you know, uh, classical sort of uh, monotheistic Christian good and evil, right? Absolutely. Um, otherwise, Mother Abigail wouldn't be a woman of God, she'd be a woman of some other opposing force. So they're both defined by each other. And, of course, you have, um, you know, you have these constant... Uh, motifs of the, of the crosses that Randall Flagg is, you know, hanging traitors and dissidents from, sorry, uh, yeah, dra- draping them from telegraph poles in the West, which mm. is like just a really, re- always the most kind of sinister bringing together of, uh, you know, archaic biblical imagery with the, with the kind of horribly modern and uh, 
bare skeletal sort of ugliness of modern life telegraph poles, you know. Mm. So yeah, a- a- absolutely. Um, this is, this one is steeped in traditional mythology and terminology for good and evil. Yeah, absolutely. And did that kind of did did, did it bother you that it's such an overt Christian book? I mean, nah, because it's I don't such know what... a great story. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like it, it, it's it, I, I'm not a religious person, but you know, it. The question with writing is: Do you have you chosen the right things? Have you chosen the right resonances? Do you give you know your readers the thrills, the spills, the shocks, the goosebumps? If you watch The Omen, you're into it because the circle of ideas around The Omen is all about that mythology and that ideology and uh, that iconography. You know, it's churches and it's crosses and it's it's sort of beasts and dev- uh, hound dogs and you know and priests and it's the same with it it's like you choose all the really gnarly bits don't you and you Mm. make the reader you make the reader's hair stand on ends because you know that that's your frame of reference you don't have to believe in aliens either but um when you read the tommy knockers you go ooh, because it's hitting it's just hitting all the right beats it's the same story uh by any other name but it, it just hits all the good bits and it is kind of hardwired into us, isn't it? I mean, whether religious or not, we do have that immediate understanding of what it is to be a devil. What what is a devil? What is an angel? What is you know the wrath of God upon us? What is again? The, the, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I'm not claiming any great. Uh, I'm not claiming to to say there is or there isn't any of this out there. But one thing's for sure is that these stories have lasted as long as they have because they're so resonant and they tap into very very deep primal conceptions and fears and hopes you know you have the hope of redemption and the afterlife and you have the fear of you know that the the darkness not only outside but inside and that's the devil right and well that's interesting because again that's another thing i think it does completely differently because to me it is the great psychoanalytical horror yes. it's all about our own id our own subconscious mm-hmm. and what that would appear like if it was threatening us but the stand is more about that kind of metaphysical angels and demons warring for us. Well, yeah, it's it's definitely more, uh, it's more standard and ancient Mm. in that, in that sense. And there's a point where Nick Andros sort of says, Oh, I don't believe in God. And I think that Randall flag, well, he doesn't say it. He writes it, of course. But, um, he says, uh, he says, uh, you know, perhaps Randall flag is just the internalization or, or, or sorry, an exterior, a version of all the internal fears and mother abigail sort of poo-poos it and she's she's seen stuff like this before but she knows there are external devils and she's she has very little time for psychology and modern conceptions of evil so yeah it's very it's very and then uh, you know it, it, yeah it, it's he, he's playing with age-old ideas and age-old ex- external uh, exterior versions of, of good and bad for sure uh, uh, and that, that, you know, that's where the book gets its strength by bring uh, by taking those ideas and applying them to very, very uh, contemporary. You know, when it was written, a contemporary and um, relatable society. You know, we we don't it's we, we don't walk yeah. around looking for miracles and catastrophe, uh, biblical catastrophes and uh, apocalypses, and um, most of us don't. <laughs> uh, they, they they do in places, <laughs> don't they? Um, but 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 you know, King says, well, what if those things are walking the earth, and what if I turn the play uh, the world into a, a a battlefield for the the last battle between these two forces? 
Yeah, I really like, and that that was something that struck me very forcefully on this reading, probably in a way it's never done before, is that you have this division between uh, the pre-plague world and then the post-plague world. And huh. halfway through the book, I th- a lot of the characters talk about the fact that maybe they're living in a new age of signs and wonders, that huh. things that are magic will now become part of um, life. And you do kind of see miracles in the latter half of the book. I think um, Mother Abigail cures Franny of um, uh, uh, injuries right, that she right. sustained. And you do kind of get things that, that are miraculous. And it's kind of interesting to think about the fact they don't only live in a world that has had pretty much everybody killed, but they do actually have like a certainty now about things that are irrational things that aren't actually yes scientific and the flag is constantly referred to as the last priest of rational thought isn't it right that's glenn bateman who is uh the sociologist and he's the mouthpiece for the rationality for rationality and uh you know Mm. it's handy to have him around when only point 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 uh point nought eight percent of the human population survives it's very handy if one of them is ralph uh is glenn, is glenn bateman because he will help you uh bi- bi- build a new small town with a small town uh, constitution and political system so oh that was lucky and um <laughs> but, but but yeah he, he's all he also uh turns over and uh, it expands on the ideas of what flag might be and how that's actually in opposition to how the world was heading with Exxon mm. and, you know, the corporate buck and, you know, social mores pre-plague. And we might be heading back into a new kind of, yeah, age of, age of magic, a sort of um, a, an age of miracles. Uh, and and he again, like many of the characters throughout the book, he wrestles with that throughout the book and emerges as a new with a new understanding. You know, he does he does accept that all the things he couldn't accept as a sociologist are now happening, um, mm. which is is really interesting that you brought up that thing about this not being a kind of coming of age story. But that all of the characters find, I, I would say, find a new. Uh, a new purview by the end of the book, very explicitly, actually. And I, I hadn't quite thought about this until now, but Harold certainly does. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as he di- lies dying in the ravine, he 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 finds a way to, you know, to to um, feel remorse for what he's done and to actually accept his new uh, appellation, which is Hawk. And he signs he signs off his uh, he signs off his. Uh, death note really by sort of saying I signed this off not with my given name but with a name I couldn't accept then accept now Larry is all about becoming a new man and becoming uh realizing his potential and it really growing up uh Stu becomes public from being very private and taciturn they they all go through something it's actually I mean Again, you know, like like all of King's best work, it's actually really good if you look at it. It really, you know, <laughs> there's there's loads of things to talk about. It it actually works. It's it's not ju- it's not just a bunch of stuff happening. Even Lloyd Henright in the um, it, over in the uh, West Zone in in Las Vegas, mm. um, there's a little bit of magic and miracle where Flag has kind of increased his intellect a little bit. Uh, by the by, but 
but Lloyd, you know, Lloyd's an interesting character. He's really sympathetic. He starts off as a kind of burlesque on Hunter Thompson type fear and loathing in Las Vegas, <laughs> kind of driving through the desert going, woo, and kind of pokerizing people with, the, you know, with his um, partner in crime, literally. But by the end of it, you know, he, he's he's developed a kind of quiet, uh, meditative acknowledgement of his own shortcomings, which is close to redemption. I think that's part of the genius of the characterization that, um, yeah, even the, and kind of this is something we, sh- we should talk about. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that it would be very simple for all the good people to live in Boulder oh, and gosh, all the yeah. bad people to go to Las Vegas. And then you've got a community that is, like one community that's plain good, one community that's plain bad. So you'll know, okay, this is great because I'm with these guys and I hate these guys. But you're never actually given that, are you? And there's always like anomalies. Yeah, I, I thought this this is a this is a real subtle mark of genius in the book, and you're reminding me that. So I must have read this. I'm going to say when I was 16 or 17, I guess, and for the first time, and it taught me a lot. It taught me that bad isn't as binary. You know, good and bad aren't as binary as they're presented in. Or they're presenting as very binary on the macro level, but when you actually look at the human level. There are a bunch of people in Vegas, and I, I found it really, really instructive that you like a lot of people in Vegas. And uh, what's the name of the spy they send? Uh, Dana? Yeah, Dana Jurgens. Um, she explicitly sort of can't get her head around the fact that she's been spent, uh, sent to spy on Las Vegas, but a lot of the people there would have been her best friends, you know, in another situation. They're just plain folk, right, who might be... Maybe they're a little lost or a little weak or a little other directed than going to Boulder, right? Uh, but that, but they're really, there's a hell of a lot of humanity and warmth over in Las Vegas as well. They've just kind of chosen a dictator and, you know, through their own weaknesses and lack of maybe imaginations, right? But I, I always found that really instructive. It definitely helped me form some ideas that, you know, them isn't always... It's not always as simple as us and them, right? We're, we're all, you know, we're all brothers and sisters under the skin and all that, right? Uh, but, but yeah, the, the, I think I think Vegas would be very, very boring if you went over there and it was all just like it was all just dicing and cutthroat. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of skin. Uh, there's a lot of. Uh, that, that, that skin is given to the Vegas scenes because there, there are a few real grotesques, like there's the Rat Man, who is mm-hmm. essentially like a grinning pirate with um, sort of, I, I think he's got a bunch of, is it rats or is it teeth round his neck? Or is it ears? Yeah, it's, silver, it, it's silver dollars. It's silver it's dollars. Silver, yeah, he, 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 dollars. Yeah, he's, he's essentially a storybook mm-hmm. pirate, right? And um, yeah. and there are, there are a few, there, there's a bit of glimmer and glamour over there that makes it very notably Vegas, right? Very obviously Vegas. But most of the people over there are way more complex than you've been led to believe. And I think, again, right, King holds off showing us Vegas for a long while. He sells us the sizzle. And then when he goes and investigates it, he really confounds us by saying, you probably wanted to be a bit more titillated by this, didn't you? But actually, let me show you something. People are, people are okay. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a shocking scene when um, I th- I don't think you see it through the eyes of any of the particular characters, but there's a child there. It's like a five-year-old kid playing on the crab Ginny, table. Yeah. 
and you kind of think, well, he, he's going to die in a nuclear explosion just like everybody else. It's it's the judgment of God. It's it's Noah's flood that you yeah, know would have that would kill children, that would kill people who are not evil, but just like you say, a little weak, a little fearful. And towards the end of the book, you get some very overt references to um, Nazism and Hitler, yes, and the absolutely. way that good cool. Germans followed Mm-mm-mm. a bad person, and the idea that was they were. They were just, you know, weak or evil. They believed somebody who told them, this is the enemy, this is who you should be afraid of. But, yeah, yeah. You know, and I'll make the trains run on time, right? And we're talking yeah. about very hyper-conformist societies, right? And you, again, like, it, it, it really, you know, I had some very obviously adolescent ideas about things <clears throat> because I was an adolescent, right? And um, the fact that, like, drug use is disallowed in the West mm. Was I was like, oh, but I, it, it, you know, up until then, I was much more kind of like, you know, I was never good at drugs, but I was like, that's the rock and roll thing, right? So, exactly. so, so, so like, that's what I'd be expecting to see over there, but that's very simplistic. Um, it's much more chilling that, that uh, and nuanced that Randall Flagg would not allow drug use over there because that's not, again, that's not in line with the program, right? And But it's also very reminiscent again of Hitler. The uh, well, idea that's that what I mean. That, that, there yeah. is that extreme behavior on one hand in terms of crucifying people, but then this extreme behavior where you can't even drink the, hard liquor. Hard liquor is kind of like, you know, the, just drink bottled beer because the, you don't the want line, to drink too much. The right? lines of morality are, are shown to be very, very semi-permeable in this book. And mm. I think that's one of its real strengths, even as, as I say, the overarching battle is a... Uh, you know, an updating of a, of a, a very, very binary battle that's, you know, pervaded a lot of human thought and society and uh, mythology for thousands of years. But when you get down into the weeds, it's confounded by any number of nuances. It's a very humanistic book down there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I know. It, it, it really doesn't draw, like, harsh judgment on anybody except for those who... Um... As we talked about earlier, do not change. Who cannot change? Right, or who changed so Mother, too late, like Harold, or even like Mother Abigail, who dies at the point in which she has to die, essentially, because there is no need for a prophet anymore in the society. It's birthed itself. She is like the the handmaiden at the birth of the new society, and after that, she is useless. Well, that's true, so, right? So, yeah, that that's one of the um, you know, what one of the criticisms of the stand, and this is probably uh you know where where the um which i by the way uh don't believe overall you know that trope that old king doesn't know how to finish a story right i don't believe that's as strong as the tropes become it's an easy joke and again i think we talked about it re it where he appears in part two of the movie and you know is scripted to make that own joke at his that joke at his own expense but i don't believe that right i i like a lot of stephen king's endings but I think a case could be made for it in this case, right? It it doesn't it, it it sort of ends with oh well, what was all that for, right? But I I think that the journey is worth it. The journey uh, earned the end. It, it, the journey earned the book the right to end pretty much any way it does. I think it it, it I think it, I I understand why people can go oh yeah all right and then everything just blew up and it was fine. 
And also, you know, what did the characters do to make it happen? Well, they do, st- um, and this is where I come in from what you were saying, right? The characters have to be, um, at some point, pawns in the game. So, uh, oh, that's reminded me of a really nice thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but like uh, Larry, Glenn and uh, Ralph, are the, Ralph? Three, yeah. are the three of the four who make it to Vegas for the final stand that gives the book its name. But what do they do? They only, they're they only really there to bear witness. They don't do anything. They're, at that point, they are just, they, they have to be, they're, they're like pieces in a ritual, as Mother Abigail uh, has to be a piece in a ritual at that point in the story where she goes away for 40 days and 40 nights, essentially, in the desert, comes back to die. And she's. it's just like you've fulfilled your role in the cosmic scheme. So maybe you could sort of say that's a shortcoming of the book. I would say that the strength of the book is that King at once lets all of these pieces be pieces in the cosmic puzzle, but also invests each of them with an actual human, really human backstory and history. And even though Mother Abigail is ultimately revealed to sort of be a chess piece, the first time we meet her is, you know, just, again, just masterly character sketching and we you know we we essentially hear you know a hundred years of mother abigail's life and she's nothing but human and playing at the um uh the concert i can't remember the the uh the town the guild ranges the grange yes thank you um you, you know the, the the and we hear about her her children her grandchildren and her husbands and she's nothing but human until later on in the story, she's only she's only there to be a piece in the cosmic, you know, mystery of it all. But King gets to do both of these things. No, that's a very interesting point because I've never really thought about it in the terms that um, if Larry, uh, Ralph, and Glenn hadn't arrived in Vegas when they did, the trash can man still would have come in and blown it up essentially well, I, so I think i think there's a little you bit can, of, it's like a symbolic ritual i, th- I but think you it can also say it really does mean something i think it's 90 percent symbolic what is that maybe not maybe more they have a little bit they have a little bit of something to do which is that they're there to kind of get the crowd riled up enough so that the chef whose name escapes me is it it's either whitney or whitey horgan it's something Let's Horgan. Yeah. Let's go with it's Horgan. Mm-hmm. He he he's kind of riled up enough by Larry and Ralph's stand to come forward to anger flag to the point where anger puts the pilot light on, which is this little blue kind of ball of energy, which then meets the trash can man's nuclear warhead. So they're there, but it's a little like, do you remember the old mousetrap board game where you have to, mm. like at, at that point, Larry and Ralph are really like the, the bathtub with the bowling ball so that eventually the <laughs> match, but they're, they're, but, but they're mostly symbolic, but King gives them just a, he makes the, the plot have a little bit of mechanization, but it, you know, the bigger story is they had to walk, they had to walk through the desert. They had to cleanse themselves. They had to purge themselves. They had to become the, um, the potter's clay, as Glenn, mm. Glenn realizes before he gets wasted, and then uh, they they were there to bear witness, I think, to really an archetypal and sort of inevitable unfolding of events. No, that's fascinating. I never actually looked at it from that perspective before, but you're absolutely right because it does go back to what Glenn was saying about 
you need the clay, you need the tools, you need mm -hmm. the potter to actually make an act of creation. And if one aspect of that is deficient, then it doesn't work. Right. In the exactly. same way, they need the ritual, the witnesses, the yeah. trash can man, flag to be angry enough to be confused about what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the, machinas, the machinations are there and they all mean something. But I think when people... And I have, you know, I have heard people sort of say, well, it started terrifically, then it gets slow in the middle, which, by the way, we can talk about. I love the middle. But then uh, when people don't love the stand, I've often heard them say, but then it just went, it fizzled. But I, I don't think so. I, th I, think, I think King is showing us th this archetypal story playing out. And I think everything, everything happened for cosmic and sort of human reasons at the same time. And it's actually really, really well melded but um i'd like to talk a little about some of the storytelling if if you'd like to get on to well I, i'd particularly like to talk about the idea that mm. it begins with the end of the world right and right. then where do you where do you actually <laughs> as, as even as a creative exercise where would you go after that mm -hmm. because you this begin is... with the literal collapse of society and then yes yeah, what, what, one, how... of, <laughs> what, one of the reasons this is so i if it's not already clear, it and the stand are my two favourite kings, and I think the stand probably just edges it for me. But it's very, very close, and mm -hmm. you know, it's one of these things. Well, I don't have to choose; I've got them both. Um, but, um, <laughs> but, 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 uh, but they're, 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 they both say huge and very different things to me. Uh, and I, I, although I've talked about some similarities, yes, they operate at very different scales. The thing I love about the stand is that I love to see. I really love to see what's underneath everything, what's holding us up. Now, I'll give you a very uh, mundane, but to me, sort of evocative example, right, which is I sometimes like those talent shows like Britain's Got Talent and The Voice mm -hmm. and things like that. And I don't know if you've watched any of those, Richard, or if you'd admit to it on air. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very cultured, so uh, I don't. <laughs> oh, you don't go near this. They can't even, don't even know what they are. Don't even under, know who Simon Cowell is. I don't know where that came, name came from. Um, yes. <laughs> I, what talent shows you speak of? Well, I, I, I like them because, they, uh, because they're, they're bread and circuses, right? And that's interesting society uh, so sort of from a uh, sociological point of view. They're, they're big, big spectacles. They keep everybody, you know, uh, in uh, in soma, and uh, you know, uh, but I'm not that bleak. I, I what what I really like is that I, I like seeing all the, these giant budgets with all these these trappings, essentially huge, you know, huge pyrotechnics, huge effects. Huge... But then, when a contestant or an act is actually picked or wins something or goes through to the next round, suddenly that doesn't matter at all because what you see is suddenly. Hu uh, pure human emotion of joy or heartbreak or whatever it is breaking through right and it it doesn't matter that the scaffolding around it cost a gazillion dollars or that it's on 55 terrestrial channels in 126 countries right you just see what's underneath it all which is uh, uh, somebody trying to aspire to something and it means something to them even if you don't believe that they're talented or you're not interested in their art right i like to get down to the bones and the stand mm. is always a, is about showing when all the scaffolding of society falls away. At you know, at a global level, we see America as a stand-in for the world, but it's a global level. We understand that. 
at an existential level what remains and so to me it that that stuff always really really rings my bell and that's why i love the stand because you see the nakedness underneath all the scaffolding so uh, the, but it you, you got to admit it's got more dramatic punch to have that vividly displayed in the first 400 pages oh it's shocking it's next, shocking but then you get the next 300 pages of uh, committee meeting minutes and but, but, it's but I, but I like really that as well. interesting it is, uh, yes exactly i think it's really interesting some people get bored there king i think said he got really bogged down in that section and couldn't mm-hmm. couldn't work himself out of it and there there are a few um there there are a few point there's a few too many little scenes of um Stu and Franny just having lovey dovey talk and then basically going off for a shag, and it's re- uh, you know there's just there's a there's- lot of sex and I didn't realize that this is another thing that struck me a lot a lot of um a lot of chapters end with uh, and then they went to bed or well, that, it, but it's it's almost always Stu and Franny right there's, there's other yeah. characters I'd rather see maybe um, <laughs> but uh, but um excuse me um, but, but, uh, but there are Adam and Eve analogs they've got to be fucking no 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 well that's yeah that that is true isn't it because um. You know, friend is friend is bearing the child as well. Um, but but no, it, it, but you can you can see uh, you know you can see King getting a little bogged down. Uh, and uh, I love it. I love all the town councils. I love all the you know the endless meetings. Because again, because to me this is this is the uh, the smile under. Oh, sorry, this is the human expression underneath all the scaffolding. This is the point. What are we made of? How do we rebuild? But. I think King said he got out of it by just blowing everyone up. He thought, how am I going to get, I need something to happen. So he gets Harold to plant a bomb and that's great too. But yes, what's so shocking and what's so immediate and what most, what most readers of the stand will take away uh, more than anything, I think is the first 400 pages or so of what happens when the world falls apart in three weeks flat. And that, that to me is thrilling it's grotesque. It's lurid. It's sensational. It's shocking. It's the that that to me is like the um, my touchstone for all apocalypse, all horror. Uh, sorry, all, all survivalist fiction ever since. Really, the, it's never really been done better than this to me. Um, it's so. Uh, it, here's one of the. Um, uh, here's something I'd like to say about where the storytelling meets the actual f- content as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the original, in the originally published iteration of the stand, it began with Stu sitting at Hap's Texaco station, and he's sitting there in a failing economic town. Oh, how the circle comes around, hey folks! <laughs> and um, the circle opens, the circle closes, the circle never changes. Um, but he's sitting there in, you know, this in. Uh, oh, Campion. Is it uh, Campion? It's, it's no, Cam- Arnett. Oh, sorry, Arnett. Yeah, the name of the town. They're sitting in Arnett, Texas, yep. East Texas, um, a, a failing uh, once industrial town. They're chewing the fat, and then a car driven by the dying uh, Campion. Uh, is it Charles Campion? I think. Uh, yes. Who, uh, yeah. who has the plague, and he he's basically patient zero. We will find out. A car comes seesawing and skedaddling and weaving and yawing and pitching along the road and slowly crashes into the petrol pump. And that's the start of the plague being unleashed. It's a marvellous, marvellous thing. And I'm indebted to somebody on Amazon who pointed this one out. But 
that is the way to start a story in media res. When mm-hmm. King reinstated the pages that apparently would, uh, weren't cost-effective to publish originally in the 70s, and this is now the only version of the stand you can buy, he put in the original prologue, mm-hmm. which shows Campion escaping the army base with his wife and little baby girl. And it tells you right from the off, a plague has been unleashed by the military, and then you go to the Texaco. Much stronger, storytelling-wise, to start sitting around and something's going to come in and crash into your world at slow, at, at slow speed, inevitably slowly, like a zombie or something. Um, and, and so that's very interesting to me, right? That, so, so somebody on Amazon pointed out what a great in-media res uh, beginning the stand as it was originally published contains and i think that's a great writing storytelling lesson for anyone um except stephen king who then <laughs> then said everything everything i've ever written demands to be seen that that has that has to be reinstated um one of one of the um having said that right i i, I i'm so used to the longer version of the stand now the director's cut that i can't remember if any of the military scenes were in the originally published version right because although I I don't like that prologue, I love quite a lot of the stuff with Starkey mm-hmm. and uh, the subordinates and the military people, and they're making their sort of jaded, quaalude uh, and sort of barbiturate, um, tainted sort of appraisals of the situation. And we, we see them just going to rack and ruin as Project Blue winds down. Those, uh, I, th- I, th- I believe there were a few scenes of those in the original, originally published, and I might be wrong. They're really, really great writing. Yeah, I'd have to go back and check on that myself. And this was kind of something I wanted to talk to you about, was, again, going back to it, we do see the origins of Pennywise coming to Earth. But again, they're very outre and strange. You're not yes. sure if it's an alien or yeah. an asteroid or whatever, where it's actually from, whether it's in this dimension or another dimension. It- and it's done through a sort of shamanic, um, hallucinogenic mm. ritual, don't forget. So it's not even real, real. Exactly. It's a perception of what they mm-hmm. think is happening rather than what is happening. Um, I was thinking, because I had a very vivid memory of the uncut edition reading, uh, sorry, the cut edition reading that one I, reading that one first, that they don't really explain too much about where the plague's from. I think that's from. correct. I and think... to me, that is more effective, I it, think. I think it is stronger. I think mm. you don't... I, it, I, I really, but it's it's also interesting to me that I can't remember. It, it's the only section of the of the reinstated stuff that I'm vague on. I can under I, I know that the kid, mm-hmm. the kid wasn't in the first published version. I know that some of the uh, very outre and really lurid kind of racial stuff wasn't in the first published version. Like there's this really weird kind of. Um, military racially loaded scene where uh, uh, they, they hijack a TV series and they're performing kind of live uh, assassinations on TV, right? And that, that's re- it's really ugly, but it's just an artifact. Um, uh, you can see it doesn't fit in, right? It just. But I cannot remember. I think the military stuff was very, very lightly sketched in until the last third of the novel, when it mm. when it's become it becomes more explicit in the trash can man's looking around uh, the military bases, and we we hear through the kind of eyes and ears of a couple of characters 
I think I think flag and trashy more than anyone that Project Blue was a government thing. So I do love most of the military scenes, though, in part one, because they're so goddamn fascinating. They are just as alien to me as the smoke hole in it and, it, uh, you know, it descending from the sky like the Ark of the Covenant. Mm. To see into the highest echelons of military intelligence and to see that warped, secret, uh, contingent, top top level, ex, uh, extrem, in extremis, emergency contingency world going down in flames is so alien and so evocative. No, you're right. I, I, I do love those sequences. I'm not entirely sure how effective they are, but I do love them. And I do love the character work, as always. Definitely. It goes into these things like... Um, there's this wonderful image of Starkey watching the man face down in the bowl of yes, beef stew. That's right. And before he kills himself, he wipes the face clean. Yes. And then the guy who takes over from Starkey becomes equally obsessed with wondering, yeah, well, yeah. why didn't he, why uh, is he still in the eyebrows? And he, and it's uh, just the fact that they can't think about what they've done or their guilt or the horror that's outside the base. So they have to hyper-focus on this. I hyper-focus on, 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 the, on the horror of my, the minutiae of it. And uh, mm. by the way, I'm glad you mentioned that moment because it seems to have an echo with Suffer the Little Children, that short story, mm. which is one of the scariest things I think King ever wrote. And uh, that, that story ends with uh, a line somewhere, something along the lines of, uh, after a while, he couldn't look away. And it's exactly the same thing. A replacement has come in to observe a situation and cannot look away. And that's what happens with Starkey's replacement in the stand. Uh, he's looking at this guy face down in the soup or whatever and thinking, oh, oh, well, yeah, why, why, why didn't why didn't Starkey get all the soup off his eyebrows? It's like, <laughs> a- anyway. Um, but, it's but, also sketched out very well in uh, the short story N. Do you know that one? Is, is that a King story? I don't know that one. It's I think it's in Just After Sunset. It's kind of a Lovecraftian thing about... Oh, okay. um, I'm... A psychiatrist who treats somebody who becomes obsessed with this completely abstract concept. It turns out to be uh, Nyrolotep, the Lovecraftian god. And uh-huh. then the psychiatrist becomes infected by this obsession as well. It's, oh, it's just that idea of um, a folie deux, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Passing on. I, I've read N, but sorry, I've read Sunset, but I don't remember the story. I'll have to go and revisit it. Uh, but yeah, you know, just... Um, a, 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 just one of many, many, many Stephen King tropes throughout this book. Um, but um, yeah, that 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 first the first breakdown of society in, in this book. Um, it, it, it's so uh, yes. Again, what King does, and just reminds you of what a, you know. He's a brilliant novelist in that he can turn his authorial focus to such diverse characters. And, you know, he doesn't seem to have any problem writing about a societal misfit um, pyromaniac like Trash Can, like, the, you know, the world's misfit. And then in the, in the next beat, writing like this kind of taciturn East Texan called Stu Redmond, or in the next beat, writing about uh, the, the higher echelons of Secret Service intelligence, and you believe in them all. He can go anywhere. Yeah, they're all three-dimensional, and they all have those 
beautiful little grace notes that mean they're never entirely good or oh, bad. That's or, exactly it's, it. It's, it's really like it's it's such startling talent that King exhibits in this book, I think. Um, and he, he just shows you what he's great at. Certainly in that first section, like if you were ever in any doubt, then why, you know, oh, <laughs> you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't like King? We'll read this. Can you stop turning the pages? No. And no. then we, we get to, I think, what for me is like, Desert Island King, right? If I had to, if I had to take one short story to a Desert Island by Stephen King, I'd pluck it from the stand, and it would be the introduction of Randall Flagg. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Because so this is a bit where he's walking along the highway. It's our introduction to the walking dude, and yeah, and it's just, I believe I haven't, uh, I haven't really looked into this properly, but didn't King? some years before the stand write a kind of tone poem about the dark man mm-hmm. and that kind of became the germ of Randall Flagg and then he kind of essentially redoes that in prose for the introduction of Flagg in this book and I think it's just a great great distillation of you know it, it's the great it's a great distillation of roving evil and roving chaos and it, it you can you can take it as a stand-in for sorry no pun you can take it as a uh, a kind of allegory for any kind of evil or way of thinking you like right but um the language in that section is just so nice and arcane and f- glowing you know he talks t- sort of talks about flag uh Traversing the country, the body politic is glowing and sort of open to him. The the country is a series of under underground networks and kind of um, you know stations really, and uh, it, it's a it, it, it's 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 a network, it's a mycelium for him, you know. And it's that's so, very interesting because he himself is like a virus, isn't he? He's a right, exactly. He's a he's, virus within the virus that's infecting yeah, the, the body politic. Like absolutely right, and and he may be ancient, right, and he may not know where he's come from, and he may be sort of in some way biblical, but he's actually the kind of pulsing, throbbing, hot virus at the heart of contemporary society, you know, or at least the American version thereof, right. And I, you know, and he's clack clacking away. And so here's one little nuance that I picked up in the last few listens or uh, in the last couple of years that um, it always really intrigued me that he carries pamphlets mm-hmm. of all, uh, of any persuasion. You know, some of them will be uh, radically anti-Semitic. Some of them will be, uh, you know, save the whale essentially, right, or whatever. You know, there'll be it can be CND, it can be uh, it can be violent terrorism. He will carry, uh, and they all they all mean the same thing to him. Yeah, he, and, he, and, he's like what well, he's like what Twitter is uh, now. You see, he's, uh, <laughs> a host of <laughs> c- conflicting ideologies that all want to kill each other. It's wonderful. But 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 but, but, but yeah, but he but he's the platform rather than an exponent thereof. Right? He he has he plays no favorites. He's just he's just about he's just he he is just about being a medium for who for human um discourse but discourse meaning um uh com- well you know conflict and polarity of thought it's all good it's all grist to the mill doesn't matter what it is so long as it can be set off against something else so he's like you know he's carrying within him at the kind of um 
psychological level, he's carrying in him Leland Gaunt, really. You know, he's all about wiring humans up to kill each other through through dissent. Two of my favourite things I noticed about Randall Flagg on my most recent read of The Stand. Firstly, I think it's towards the end he realises he doesn't have a long-term memory. Yes. Which is wonderful because that, that puts him in a literal zeitgeist. He is the spirit of the age. He is whatever needs to be done at that point. And that relates back to a descriptor of him earlier in the book, quite early, I think, where he's described as being the kind of person who will turn up for a meeting, not say anything, but after he leaves, the people in that meeting will be focused, insane still, crazy, and ready to start making bombs, ready to start buying guns. He is that f- a tightening of their insanity into a... He, he is Leyland fo- Gaunt or he is Tyler Durden. He is, he is just an agent f- to set yeah. humans against humans. It's magnificent, you know. It's so, it, it, that, that, he's my, he, he's my, uh, you know, he's the, he's, he, he's the shark from Jaws, right? It's, <laughs> he's not my favourite character, but he's the, he's the big boy, you know? He's, he's the reason. He's the reason everybody else is hopping and jumping and spitting and shouting, right? And uh, I really, I, I really can't get enough of that that one section. And it, it, it's so dark. It's so flickery. Uh, and I think we talked about this a little bit maybe last time. But I think any other iteration. I, I know you don't like the Dark Tower, right? And I have mixed feelings. I'm a on it. Dark Tower skeptic. I, it's not that I dislike it. No, I, I understand. I think it's it's so outre and it's so all over the place. And I've, you know, I, I, I like it, but it, it's it, it's ma- it's bonkers. It's really bonkers. And a, and a lot of it is like clunky as, you know, it's clunky. Which is a, a common criticism I have of most of the fantasy genre to be honest okay I, I'm not a fantasy fan right but um, I don't but it's um, interesting you love this book which has got Lord of the Rings so much in its DNA oh the stand yeah well yeah well because it oh sorry I, w- I was going to say that it, um, uh, yeah sorry just to just pick up on the Dark Tower when when, when Randall Flagg appears in the Dark Tower eh, it, eh, I'm not that fast no? that, that's just King <laughs> stitching together stuff and kind of putting his uh ducks in order you know to leave the legacy right he does he's not this he's kind of actually a bit of a he's a bit of a wuss in the dark tower he's a bit he's a bit silly really and he gets eaten by a giant spider at the end but um but but not but not penny wise but um uh, but like that to me that's like the character of the the character of randall flag in the stand would never be eaten by a Mm -hmm. You know, Morlock or whatever he's called, uh, Mordred. Uh, he, that's he, he deserves a. He's a he, he's so badass in the stand. The only other place I really like him is in uh, the Eyes of the Dragon, where yeah. where he's put into you know where he's just cast as the evil vizier, which I really like. Yeah, but I I, I do like that one because again, you get the idea that he's always been in this society and he's always been a, an influential figure for evil. Like he's an executioner or he's. Um... The advisor, the power behind the throne, and I find that really interesting. Yeah, me too. He translates really nicely to law and folklore and mythology and fairy tale and story, mm. and he translates less successfully to just just popping up here and there and going ooh in the dark tower, right? Um, yeah, because he does have allure. He is charming as well. He is 
evil and angry and capricious, but he can also be very charming and very uh, very ingratiating, seductive, seductive, very yeah. ingratiating when he needs to be. And well, like does, he, like you were saying earlier, Lloyd is loyal to him, utterly utterly loyal to, despite what he does. He knows. Well, I'm always going to be in debt to this guy because when I was at my lowest, he picked me up and said, you know, come with me. And there's truth in that. And, and he and he absolutely explicitly stands in for the devil at points. Like when Nick Andrews starts dreaming of... Uh, oh, and here's another thing. You know, we were talking about the, the non-binary nature of the good and bad characters, in quotes, you know. Mm. Um, I think it's great that we see a lot of our heroes also being tempted by the Dark Man during their dreams. Some mm. of them never dream of him at all, right? But that's rare. Everybody really has a call from Mother Abigail and from Randall Flagg within them. And, for instance, Nick Andros is essentially tempted by the devil in his dream, you know. He has to turn down Randall Flagg three times. He's, he's sort of saying, don't you want to be able to hear and to talk? And he has to turn him down three times, and that's just classic biblical shit right <laughs> and um and then there's of course uh uh the, the the really really extreme characters barely dream of one or the other so um sure trash cam man he the only way he dreams of mother abigail is a, a, as a, a as a scary force trying to weed weasel him out as a weasel in the corn right yeah but everybody, because he's an amoral figure he's not an immoral or moral figure. Exactly, he's an amoral figure. Exactly. stands outside the um the battle, you know, exactly so. Right, he's a he's a he's a he's a wreck of a human being, and um, but every everybody else has this, you know, this call that can go both ways in them. Uh, yes, where were we? <laughs> well, they're, they're talking about characterization yes. as always, because I think that is at the heart of this book. And you know, you talked earlier about how Randall Flagg isn't your favourite character. Yes, but um, who is? Do you think, in terms of the, do, book? do you remember who I told you was my favourite character in it? Was it Mike? No, it's Ben. Oh yes. Uh, See, so, so uh, I'm, I'm just, just, just. Who, who's my favourite character in the stand? You're right. It's not Randall Flagg. Who is it? Mm. Harold. No, definitely not. But definitely I've got a Harold. bit of Harold in him, in me, rather. Ben. Okay. I'll give you one. No, more I, 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 I think we all do. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think oh. that, that, is, that is the beauty of Harold. That I think at all point we we've been that kid who's yes, been excluded. Yes. And we uh, kind well, of think. Look, this is the constant readers. You know, there's this great bit in Harold's um, backstory where uh, he's a br- brilliant character, by the way. He must be one of the earliest examples of a writer character in King's fiction as well. Uh, I think before that, you've probably had like Ben Mears was the only one I can think of. Off the top was of my head. This was before so... The Shining, wasn't it? Oh, no, no. This, no. When, when was it's the standard relationship? Is, the stand's his fifth novel. It's oh, okay. released in 78, but it was actually written in 75, so it does kind of predate. Okay. So, so. you've got um, Jack Torrance and Ben Mears and uh, The Shining Saints oh. first. Well, I suppose just by, just in terms of pure chronology, it's one of his earlier character, writer characters. But but it is interesting that kind of Harold is a failed writer in a lot of ways, or a writer who writes perhaps for the wrong reasons. He writes as a form of masturbation rather than actual... It is interesting. I I think just from a Stephen King point of view, it's interesting that even when telling a story about the end of the world, there has to be one 
one writer in there, you know, one somebody who really has to write, you know. Uh, uh, and I, I, just uh, as a little aside, has there ever been, uh, have we asked this question before, has there ever been an author who is so obsessed with the craft of writing of Stephen King? No, no, no there just hasn't. Right? I, I think we've talked about this before, and I, mm. I've, I've thought about it since. And I, I couldn't think. No, of, I um, think I think we did talk about it, but I couldn't think. Of, I couldn't think of another one who who puts writers so strongly at the fore of it, what it, he's doing. It's so. It, I mean, I, I I love that. You know, it doesn't. It never. It never really seems egomaniacal, right? It's just like St- Stephen King is like, well, this is what I do, but. Why do I do it? I have to examine yeah. it a thousand different ways. <laughs> um, uh, 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 but then anyone else who's like got such a hang up about stuff doesn't. Pro- it's like I have to examine it, but it's not going to stop me from examining. It. I'm just going to write. I'm just going to write about writers. Anyway, um, Harold is an early version of a, a writer character, but my favourite character in the entire book is Larry. Okay, I was. I, I, I've he, underlined Larry here because he's such a he's a brilliant character, fascinating character, and I think. I think King loves Larry mm-hmm. probably more than the other characters, or he is. I think he's I mean, lo- he has he shares some of the things that King was going through at the time, which is to say addiction issues, which yeah. is to say a very sudden, very meteoric rise to fame. Oh, that's true. I'd never thought of that actually. And it's also the idea of responsibilities to other people. What do you actually owe other people? Which is something I think is very big in King's work. So, but what, 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 why, why does Larry hold that um, mm-hmm. hold that kind of resonance for you? And may I put it in a, a different way? Yes, uh, a baby. Why do you dig your man? <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> he's uh, a righteous man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, that's uh, that that's a, that was a tasty framing. Um, his <laughs> uh, his. You, you love him from the off. You're rooting for him from the off. He's flawed, and he's trying, and sometimes he's close to not trying. And you want him to come through, and your and his mother wants him to come through. And his mother looks at him when he returns to New York just before the play gets really going, and uh, you know she she knows it. Everybody knows it, right? Most people really like Larry. But she sort of says, "There's something missing in you, you know. There's something." Mm. And then the the guy in L.A. when he does get famous and he's throwing Wayne a party, Stuckey. Yeah. Wayne Stuckey, who uh, you know puts Larry straight on all the hangers on and assholes who have sort of uh, leached onto him when he has got a bit of money to burn and he's throwing a big party. He says, "Look, you'll get through this, Larry. There's something hard in you, like biting on tinfoil." I think that that was from Stuckey, and his mum says, "There's something missing in him," and you just. I think anyone who's ever uh, the later Judge Farris says, I think, um, you know, uh, I, I think it's Farris who says, uh, car- uh, people who find themselves late in life mm-hmm. will never be quite sure of themselves, and it's a really good admixture because they make very, very good leaders because they won't be corrupted by their own power because they have too much doubt. But they will be. They will strive, and they will. They will try always to sort of make up for their earlier failures. I think. I just really relate to Larry. I. Um, I think I found myself quite late in life. I think I, you know, have always wanted to. You know, f- felt like oh, don't misunderstand me. If I'm looking a bit weak, right, or if I'm looking a bit. 
I'm a good guy underneath. I know I am. I know it. And I and I, I just see it in Larry. He's a he, he's he's just such. To, he really speaks speaks really loudly to me. Also, I mean, I'd love to be a rock and roll star, but he 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 has he has a little bit of King in him there as well, because of course King would love to be a rock and roll star, and you know does have his rock and roll band. So he ha- he carries a lot of um, he he, ca- he carries the kind of. A little bit of hand solo, a little bit of shooting from the hip, a little bit of cool, but a lot of doubt. And I find that a really attractive combination. And, uh, you know, a very I feel I feel very strongly towards characters like that, who who are cool and good, but doubt themselves. Mm, I, th- I think reading it this time around, Larry's arc was the one that stuck out to me the most, mainly because he is so often um, it's it, it's it's brought up very early on what's wrong with him. Yes. And that becomes like the, how do you fill that hole in yourself? How do yeah, you become yeah, yeah. a real person? And so he's continually tested. He so is, he's continually tested by Rita. He's tested by Joe. He's tested I, by Nadine. He's yes, tested yes. by um, Nancy, I think. And then at the end, it's tested by, there's a great sequence where Stu falls in the ravine. Yes. And everybody says, okay, we're going to leave you because we've yeah. got the thing oh, to do. And God, Larry yeah. says, no, we, we, we can't leave him. This is absolutely ridiculous. And it becomes that responsibility. And you realize he's turned a responsibility into kind of a neurosis in a way that it becomes a thing where if he doesn't help Stu, he's the bad guy. He's going to be that, that fuck up again. And it's Glenn who says to him, you know, you've turned this into like a crusade. And you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's not about you, Larry. You, you've you basically you're making a category error. You know, you're 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 making your guilt the important story, and that's what he has to learn. So, it, yeah, I think you just put your your finger on it. Really, he just he just needs to learn to get out of his own way and to. Um, he, he's a confused character. I relate to confused characters, you know, and he's got he's got some sadness in him. I think he um he, he's got a despondency in him against himself, and I really. I really relate to that. I think uh, he's such a, he's so fucking likable. That's why he's a good character because he, he is harder on himself than anyone ever will be. And you can see that and you can see why there be, you can see why he takes it hard, but you're, you, you, he's so goddamn likable. I am. Um, and that's what I was kind of interested to compare him to Harold as a character. Yeah. Cause Harold is a character who doesn't achieve the change. He achieves Too the late. facsimile of change. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and of course, at the very end. But yeah, he people want him to like be less creepy and be a nicer guy, and he does kind of fake that. He, he smiles and he, he well, becomes useful tragic, to people. The tragic thing but about Harold inside, is, yeah, he doesn't change inside. Like no. it's not like Larry, where he does, you know. But, but the, the tragic thing is that Harold's talents and strengths are like you know multifarious, and there are people in the border free zone clapping him on the back, literally clapping on the back and calling him Hawk and saying, every time you open your mouth, Hawk, you coin money for this place, you know. <laughs> and, and like, and Harold does have a, you know, he has a, he wrestles with himself. He wrestles with himself and he says, I could be someone here. I am getting good at this shit. And look at me, I'm no longer the kind of fat, acne-ridden uh, loser that I, you know, everyone told me why I was that I that I told me I, myself I was at high school, right? I, I Har- the the problem with Harold is he actually has he he has changed, 
and he won't ac- yeah. he won't accept that until too late, right? He won't- or he is given so many chances to actually well, do the right but, thing and just it, never. He's always drawn back from that. Point. It, it, but the problem with him is that he fakes it till he makes it. And then he breaks it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but That's he, a good way of putting he, it. He won't take he won't take yes for an answer, as a <laughs> as a former girlfriend once told me. Um, but uh, um, but uh, he, he, he's he's a really really tragic character for just that reason, right? Um, and he more than almost anyone. No, not no. I take that back. He as explicitly as anybody in the novel is shown to be a pawn in the cosmic game by the end of it. It's interesting because, like yourself, I've done some background reading on the stand, kind of its reviews and receptions and how it kind of did. And Nadine doesn't get the same amount of leeway I think people give to Harold. And I she's think the least likable character, probably. She's a fascinating character though, because, in many ways, she is from a completely different book. She is from a a weird gothic novel with Ouija boards and yeah, she's, uh, she's devil also, rape and things like that. She doesn't yeah, really yeah. exist in the real world. And she's often referred to as being completely ethereal and strange. And even her first appearance is when she's with this feral child and she mm. controls him. I, I, uh, what, what did you make of her? It's a great question. I, th- I think, I, I certainly think she's not as likable, although she's fascinating as most of the other characters, because there's an aloofness about her and otherness that sets her apart. Um, I think, I, yeah, she, she's kind of like a, from a weird gothic version of Tess of the D'Urbervilles or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there, there are these bits of her running through the um, uh, memories she has of sort of running away from the guy who wanted to take her virginity as a teenager and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's, yeah, or, or like maybe Angela Carter or something um, mm-hmm. for, as a more modern corollary. But I... I she, yeah, I. Oh, it's a really good question. I. Th- I she's interesting because I think she should incite our sympathy, but she doesn't. I. I. I, I think that. I think the long and the short of it with Nadine is it Nadine, Nadine is um, she just isn't quite as well realised a character as almost everyone else in the novel. So mm. and, and I think that's why I think um, I, I, she's got a great surname because she brings in. Uh, the cross again, like the crucifixion, but also the crossroads because her destiny, mm-hmm. her destiny is so um, obviously dependent on what she does next. The uh, yeah, y- yeah. The other reason she doesn't quite fit with the other humanistic or the other human characters is that there's always been a supernatural curse upon her. She was exactly cho- she was chosen in a very vague, never quite satisfactory satisfactorily explained way to be uh flags you know in d- demonically intended right and, and and larry could larry could save her from that but it's not his burden to but no one can save her from that because she is existing on a slightly different mythological plane i think that's correct but it's also the idea that we're talking about that larry does eventually get that compulsion to save people and Nadine is the one he cannot save. Nadine is the person that he he does reject her, and that seals her fate. It, 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 but it's not Larry's fault, and Nadine does not exist quite on the same plane. To me, she's the same. She's kind of, at some level, the same thing as the as the themes that don't quite come off in it, like the grackles for Bev, or mm-hmm. he thrusts his fists against the post for. Um, Big Bill, right? 
Uh, she, it's like, yeah, I totally get what you're painting there. And, oh, actually, there is a, yeah, I, I do quite like these sexy bits between Harold and Nadine, but um, oops. But um, there is quite a lot of sex in the middle there, isn't there? But what else are you going to do when you're building, a, you know, you're building a new small town society in the, in the post-apocalyptic world? You, you have to you have to do something other than town council meeting. Um but yeah, yeah, birth she, she, and re- reproduction and birth is like a massive theme in the book, isn't it? It, it? It's one of those things because that is the eventual end game of this one. And they talk about it. They they say our most important commodity is, is going to be like babies because that ensures that all this actually means something. I, I, yeah, when you first see Franny, it's very early on. It's great. Because, it's, again, especially... Especially in the version of the stand that doesn't start by saying, "Oh no, there's a there's a um, military emergency and we are all going to die." Right? You see, uh, take that out of the equation, and you see Franny. I think in chapter two, and she's pregnant. Okay. Oh, okay. As the story starts to unfold, you can't. You go, "Oh boy, we've got a pregnant person surviving, haven't we?" Because you start to understand that all the characters you're following are probably going to survive. Uh, you understand the game they're about to be put into. And so Franny is pregnant with possibility in the plot and pregnant in real life in the plot and, mm. pre- and vital to the uh, continuity of human survival. She's a standard. Yeah, I mean, the, book end, the book begins with her being pregnant, to, talking about the break of the news to the father, and ends with her giving birth. So it is that cycle of nine months, isn't it? Absolutely. And you, um, you know, th- this is, again, great storytelling. You put it, you you choose the elements very, you know, perfectly. And then you put them onto the, you know, you put them into the crucible. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're so excited we've got a pregnant woman in the mix, aren't we? Because mm-hmm. it's, it, we, go, we want to know what happens with that. And I think King Elsewhere in, uh, I think King Elsewhere in the Dark Tower has said that having a pregnant character is, always seems to be a... Um, a kind of uh, a no-go as a writer for him. He always finds that like it kind of slows things down, and it certainly does in The Dark Tower, right? But Franny is definitely the exception because a pregnant character in the, in the post-plague world is fascinating because she has a plot device carried within her, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's very interesting. I am... Um, Nadine, Nadine apparently, you know, carrying the seed of flag. Um, there's a really great, but you know, uh, well, two things about this. One is, uh, again, the original iteration of the stand didn't have the rebirth of flag at the end. And no, I we, don't think it. Well, you, you mean we appears to the tribe? Yes, at the end. Ah, oh, sorry, yeah. yeah. And it absolutely, you know, I would happily, I'd, I'd keep a lot of the military stuff, barring the prologue. But I would get rid of that. Uh, you know, I would get rid of Flag at the end. He doesn't. The, the original um, iteration of the stand had Stu and Fran talking and sort of saying, "Do people ever change?" And Fran goes, "I don't know." I don't or know. Stu, I think yeah. Stu goes, "I don't know. I don't know." And that was it. Mm-hmm. And I, funnily enough, I think that's another reason people would read nine hundred pages odd and then just go. Oh, it just ended on someone <laughs> someone saying I don't know twice. What the fuck was all that about? But I, I like I like that ending. Um, mm. I, I, I don't mind I don't mind having that lurid ending of flag just because you know just to see what it's about. But we we, we really don't need it. Um, the, the, it's extraneous uh, because it's already been discussed. I think I think do Stu and Tom discuss it on the way back to Boulder, 
And I think Stu... Oh, he'll the always be there. He'll always... And he mm. says, is he dead? And he says, well, no, because he's, he's yeah. in the, all the evil stuff that's in the world, basically. Yeah, you know? the, the, the wolves will always be his. He'll always be there. And you're right. It's extraneous. And also, just, you know, we can, we less is more here, please. We can extrapolate from the fact that Flag doesn't remember his past, that he's always been there but never been there. We can extrapolate from that. We don't need to see, you know, some really, again, quite... Um, 101 kind of, you know, cartoonish tribal people at the end, sort of bowing mm. down to flag. We get it already, right? Um, yeah, the circle re- re- revolves and resets. What, yeah. What's much more interesting is about it is about the limited nature of flag in any given cycle. In the mm. uh, as Mother Abigail is it Mother Abigail? Who's, yes, I think she, she's she's pondering flag and she's thinking. People never learn. They they will never learn that someone uh, that that flag will always make the same shape over and over. He'll always make like uh, the same limited shape, like a neon sign that can't do anything but. And that's a really interesting conception of evil. So the fact that evil always regenerates is interesting. But the fact that mm. when it when it regenerates, it always makes the same limited shape is really interesting. Um, that's interesting. That, and that, that is, you know, that can be seen by the failure of Flag to uh, regenerate, uh, for, for the failure of Flag to bear a child. He can bear himself because he comes back at the end, or we, even if we don't see that extra scene at the end, we know he's going to come back in any form of human society, but he can't make something new because Nadine will always jump out the window. His plans will always go wrong. Trashy will always blow up the airplanes, you know? The, the, it's an the... interesting point, yeah, because I I didn't like that sequence where she's pregnant and then she kills herself because it seemed to be setting up like a very omen thing where you have the good child and the bad child. Uh-huh. It seemed to be setting up a very obvious kind of dichotomy there and it's not really about that it's just franny has the baby and the baby is just oh i don't I, I don't see that i see that in terms of uh what i was just saying is that evil has a very limited half-life right hmm. and yes it, it can't actually it can't create like if what you're saying is very interesting about the the novel being about rebirth right and but but something like flag can't birth something new or transcendery mm. or transcendental right it can only, it, 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 he can regenerate but he can't he can't produce a child and i think that's quite interesting and so so, so his limitations are kind of they're kind of built in i would say so in a yeah way? yeah yeah so yes i i i don't know about fail safes but yeah uh yeah, well, yeah, maybe in the cosmic scheme, right? God always wins, and that is the failsafe of the devil: is to go so far and then to start falling apart, um, you know, deteriorating. You know, like um, the the way that Trashy uh, deteriorates from radiation. Talking about Half Life, actually, is kind of an analog for what's happened, been happening to Flag for quite some time, right? His plans get aborted. Uh, the 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 air you know the the air the aircraft get get destroyed. Um, his wife, quote unquote, jumps out the window and you know aborts their child in the most horrific way imaginable. He can't he yeah. can't make new shit happen. He can only make the same old neon sign happen. So Mother Abigail is right in that regard. But he's also self destructive, and he he brings in his own 
downfall, he brings Trash close to him and says, it, you know, he you're yeah. going to burn everything. And Trash takes that very literally as to bring but, anything that burns. He also doesn't tell Lloyd about the red list. He has so many. Is, you're right. He has inbuilt. He has inbuilt blindnesses. Hmm. And he, he doesn't really know why he does anything. So he's like a sort of it, it, it's evil as an idiot savant. It's not big brain evil. It's the same old neon shape. And um, you, yeah, he uh, yeah yeah he he make he makes more and he's revealed to be more and more and more limited as it goes on. And you know, essentially, like you know, the Wizard of Oz behind the um, <laughs> the curtain, who of course then does pop up in the Dark Tower in a scene that Flag appears in again. So it's not. <laughs> hey, I mean, King is pretty deep actually, but. Uh, no, he is, because that ties very nicely into a theme I find in the book, which is um, the idea that to do good is a hard thing and to do evil is an easy thing. Yes. And that's why you have the good, quote unquote, community in uh, Boulder, yes. where it's not particularly temperate. You have very cold winters. Uh, the summers aren't particularly hot. But Vegas, you can kind of live there all the year round. It's not right, like a right. big deal. It's a, and, and it's also the fact that it's... The, they they talk about the fact that tech people will go to Vegas because they'll be able to get the lights on, they'll be able to get the heating, they'll be able to get the the water going, and they'll be able to do that easily because there is an order there, and because it can be done easily and efficiently. Whereas the, to do good is harder, really. Isn't it's it? harder. And then see again back to Harold, right? Who he he gets it bass backwards every time, right? He falls in love with the idea as evil as a hard thing to do, right? He's perverted. Mm. He he makes evil his grindstone. And he and he even he has like an aphorism from his big journal, which is the best writing he's ever done in his life, where he sort of says, um, it's something along the lines of everybody sort of says, uh, good and selflessness are the great two virtues. I think pride and self-interest are the great two virtues those are the hard you know st- uh, those are the hard uh mountains to climb right and that that's really backwards mm. he fo- he falls he he is a um a, a stand-in for the um a- a- adolescent romance of dancing with the devil and making that your kind of that your cross to bear right but it's also the fancy of accessibility as well. It's the idea that if you want, she wants Fran and he says, well, why can't I have her? I, I should just be able to have her because we're like, we're here, you know? And it's also the idea, it's, it's kind of tied into his intelligence as well, that he shortcuts a lot of things. A lot of the stuff he does is very smart, but it's a shortcut. It's not the easy way of doing things. That's right. You, you, you have, well, yeah, you can have a kind of... Uh... You you can you can see the problem and get to the right conclusion, but oh, but leap over any of mm. the learning or life experience or empathy that somebody older, wiser, and with a lot of their hard edges sheared off would understand. Yeah. He, I mean, he, he's a he's a real he's a real uh, adolescent. He's a brilliant character, and that's why Mother Abigail is such an old woman because she's meant to have that. Hard won wisdom, yes, and also decency. That oh comes my god, from we haven't even time. talked about Mother Abigail. She's a whereas Flag <laughs> is young because he keeps on repeating himself, as you say, in a very short hard life. So he's, he's constantly mm-hmm. reborn. He's ancient, but he's constantly young. He's constantly refreshing and renewing himself. Well, I, I and love you're absolutely right. We have 
talked ourselves into a two-parter, I think. <laughs> I think yeah, it's just... <laughs> tell surprise. <laughs> oh, saw it coming. Yeah, we all yeah. saw it coming. <laughs> we haven't even talked about the dreadful 2020 TV version of the stand. Well, can I just say we've got this far and we haven't even we haven't even said the word Captain Trips. It's insane. We've barely talked about the fucking plague. Oh man. I know, okay. right? So this is gonna to have to be a formal invitation to you, Andy, to come back again. Yes, absolutely. And we are going to write we're gonna write the, the committee meetings, the agenda for the free zone committee, and we're going to really I really not we 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 just scratch we, the surface. We're going to rebirth the society, right? Of the, <laughs> of the, the stand podcast. Uh, yeah, we're going to have going to have a committee meeting next time. <laughs> okay, so I, I will leave it on a on a on a cliffhanger for my for my uh, uh, listeners. So amazing. Uh, where 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 do you go, Andy Stanton? Vegas or Boulder? Oh boy! Uh, oh God, that's a hard one. Uh, it's not you know, for me. I've I've been to Las Vegas. I, it's terrible. I'm going to Boulder. I'm going to Boulder. I'm going to Boulder every time. But how I do love Shibola. <laughs> how I do love Bumpty it. Bump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what a way to go, right, folks? But, okay. I, I, oh, come, no, please, please. Let please, me get one please. last. Let me get one last bonbon about the stand in here before I, I make you talk about my new book. Um, yes. My, uh, my and then we sign off till next time. Uh, just one beautiful little sleight of hand from a you know masterly author at the top of his game here. I love the bit where Larry, Ralph, uh, and... Um, Glenn? Yes, thank you, sorry. Where Larry, mm. Ralph, and Glenn have to abandon Stu mm. in the ravine with a broken leg. And they uh, and the, the chapter ends with, none of them ever saw Stu Redman again. And if you've read... I don't understand why I haven't seen that that little that little game played elsewhere. It's a brilliant, brilliant way of putting things, right? And if you read the book, you know why. So yeah. um, there you go. We'll, we'll come back and thank you for having me, Richard. Thank you for letting <laughs> it's me been ramble a on. And uh, and and oh, what's that? You want me to talk about my new book? Uh, yeah, Benny the Blue Whale. Um, uh, it, it sounds fascinating. Uh, I, something we've talked about on this podcast and that I've yammered on about to my friends in real life as well is the fact that um, AI is such a bizarre, intriguing, deep, dark hole to fall into. Uh-huh. And if Stephen King, if you were to put all of Stephen King's novels into an AI generator, what would it come out with? And will that be something that happens when he eventually passes away? Will we still have our two Stephen King uh-huh. books a year? Will they be dreadful? Will they well, be any good? Will they have Holly Gibney in? Probably. But <laughs> please tell me about your own experiences with the okay. artificial intelligence. Well, I uh, when ChatGPT came along, it intrigued me. It was a perfect enzyme and I was a perfect receptor. I think probably more than anything, as uh, as a writer myself, I wish I could write like King. I wish I could be. Um, I, I wish I could uh, take any subject and make it feel real and deal with any characters from you know any strata of society. I can't do that. That's not what I do. I'm more about something to do with wordplay and the connectivity of ideas, and that that's why I get really thrilled when I see when I see a resonant image. A resonant spark of ideas in a king book or, or something. Um, 
but I, I, I like the hidden connections between words. This machine came along and I fell mm-hmm. into it and I started experimenting with it because it seemed to be, to me, to be talking about how we make those connections. And after a couple of weeks playing with it at the end of 2023, I typed in the most pure or silly thing you can imagine, which is tell me a story about a blue whale with a tiny penis, <laughs> which uh, is just because I'm a bit of a juvenile idiot. And uh, But I was doing what hundreds of thousands, of, uh, sorry, hundreds of millions of people were doing, or tens of millions of people were doing around the globe. I was monkeying around with something. But that's what we do when we're writing anyway. Now, mm-hmm. my fatal flaw was in then pushing that to novel length proportions and getting this machine to uh, enabling it with me to write a story about underwater religions based around penises and vaginas. And after a while, uh, I started having my characters all start writing novels with AIs as well. And then it started to become more and more wormholy. And in the end, it became a story about fiction and reality. And it was very metafictional. And then being me, I then had to put another layer of reality on it and decide to write a book about the story where I try to interrogate what had happened, how we make connections as authors, why we make connections as as authors. And of course, one of the people I reference quite a lot in my interrogation of my stupid whale story was Stephen King. And I talk about him quite a lot because he's a touchstone for me. But I talk about Vonnegut, I talk about um, uh, the the Bronte sisters, I talk about uh, um, um, Thomas Pynchon. Mm-hmm. All these people who were touchstones for me, I, 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 th- this thing confounded me and it made me wonder about why I get my ideas, where they're from, what's my internal data bank of references. And, you know, if it, whether there's an AI there or not, what am I really doing? I was playing with this machine, but ultimately, like all authors, I was sitting there playing with myself. So the story about Benny the Blue Whale and his friends and how it uh it is just an allegory for writing really so i i made this absurd thing and i'm still recovering from it some months later it really brought me as close to a nervous breakdown as anything i've ever done has done in my well, life I, I was gonna say now you've actually been through this experience how, how do you feel about ai now particularly oh, in I, terms of writing books right okay uh I, I i have every emotion under the sun towards ai and some that i didn't know i had until i started it really hurt my mind um I, I, I feel like you could take AI out of the algebraic equation of that question and say, how do I feel about reality? I feel confused. I feel very, very beguiled, intrigued, seduced, horrified, distressed. This is a very interesting thing that's descended in, you know, on our world. Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not interested in uh, work for free and I'm not interested in, any creative work unless you hurt yourself so badly if you didn't if you don't if you don't hurt yourself doing creative work i think you didn't try hard enough so you know mm-hmm. i i didn't i didn't set out to sort of go oh i can i can write a novel that's one billion words long that doesn't interest me what interests me in, is in the interaction of a human with a machine that will echo back what we do and again i think even if you're not working with a machine that does that as a writer Whatever you write, you echolocate yourself. And all writing is in some way autobiographical. And for instance, that is why King's conception of what the new society looks like in the stand 
is small town America. <laughs> you know, mm. you wherever you go, there you are. But to me, the AI was just a kind of sounding board, and it, it presented me with a kind of exploded diagram of how we make stuff. I think the way AI is going, we might get to the point that you and I don't want, which is where X years down the line, where X is a number less than 10, a machine can produce something that does produce us, uh, that does give us a simulacrum of work with intent and work with emotional effect. I think language will be the last bastion of all the artificially generated arts to fall because I think language is so slippery, so personal, so individualistic. But, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's very worrying. We, 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 the discussion I, I've heard is AI in the arts, AI in film, AI in writing. Yes. I mean, it's just, surely there are better uses for it in the first place. Ah, well, there's better uses for everything, right? There's, there's better uses for money in the world, right? But actually, it turns out that most people want to, you know, acquire money and keep other people, <laughs> keep, keep other people subservient while, whilst a few prosper, right? The, the, uh, uh, there, there are going to be amazing uses of AI, but some people, uh, well, it's already happening, right? Uh, in, let's say, commercial art, why pay a human when you're a person with a budget who needs some, who, who needs an, uh, a newspaper article illustrated when you can have it essentially done for free, right? That's the way the world works. It's not what I want and it's not what you want, but the, the, you know, that's true. That's true of any, that's true of any industry that uh, we've se- we've ever seen, right? Things are happening that are exploitative and are less than optimum from a sort of ethical point of view, right? Or less than optimal. Uh, I, I don't know where we are with this thing. Uh, it's really, really a sticky wicket with the arts. But I, I, I don't think... Uh, uh, I don't think the omens are good in some way. There's another part of me that believes in the human spirit to adapt, incorporate this into our world, and to and to out, to out-invent it and to respond to it. Apologies to Andy there. You see, the AI that makes all of these episodes, and indeed every other podcast you listen to, decided to throw a spanner in the works and disrupt our internet connection. However, as stated, I'll be talking to Andy again about his new book, Benny the Blue Whale, and the TV series we're both obsessed with, Tumblr's Willy, as well as a lot more about The Stand in a couple of months' time. Next month, however, will be N.P. Cuniff talking about Pet Cemetery Bloodlines and his new book, the Ouija Man, a slice of Irish Gothic folk horror. After that'll be Kim C and I taking another faltering step towards the Dark Tower. So why not stick with us? And don't forget to check us out on Instagram and write to us at theconstantreaderpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much.